It's Sunday, meaning I'm back with Yaakov Katz to unravel the last week in Israel. And beginning today, we've added a new feature at the end of the podcast, where we look ahead to what's coming up and what we predict will dominate life and the news in the days ahead. Today, we focus on the tragic deaths of approximately 100 Palestinians on Thursday as they stormed an aid convoy in the Gaza Strip. Clearly desperate for food and essential provisions, it seems that some were trampled in the chaos, some were shot by the IDF, and some may also have been shot by Hamas or Palestinian gangs. What we do know is that 100 people died in the mayhem, and Israel is getting blamed for all of it. We then shift to the ongoing hostage nightmare, with 134 Israeli hostages remaining in captivity. The IDF has confirmed that 29 of those hostages are dead. Hamas says the number is higher. A hostage deal, which seemed maybe possible a few weeks ago, is unlikely anytime soon. And the families are, understandably, simply unable to bear this agony. You can see it on their faces. Last week, a group of hostage family members and supporters began a march from Kibbutz Be'eri, one of the hardest-hit communities on October 7th. For four days, they walked, spending each night along the way with growing numbers of supporters. As they reached Jerusalem on Saturday, the march had swelled to almost 20,000. On Saturday night, they rallied outside the Knesset, demanding that the government negotiate the release of their loved ones immediately. Fortunately, at rallies in support of hostages last night in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, there were no police water cannons deployed, nor did the police horses charge into the crowds as they did a week ago. I was in Tel Aviv, where the rage was palpable and the police presence stronger than I have seen since protesting became a way of life more than one year ago. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, now living in the beautiful state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Good morning, Yaakov Katz. How are you today? Hi, Vivian. How are you? I think I'm better than you, as we say here these days. I'm not in Gaza. It's that it's really kind of dark comment, but asking people how are you is, is tough. Depends on the circumstances is the answer, right? Or I'm always, how are you holding up in these difficult days? But you, on top of all the other stuff, have come down with that bubonic plague that's tearing through Israel these days. Apparently it's everywhere, by the way. It's like everybody I talk to got it. So if listeners, you hear something different in my voice, it's because there is something different in my voice. (laughs) Yeah. And he's such a trooper. Thank you, Yaakov, for getting up and doing this. There really is a wicked flu tearing through Israel. I shouldn't say it, but I have not yet gotten it. And hopefully I won't. But it it lays people up for a long time. And it's bad. And I just want you to know, everybody, Yaakov looks great today for someone with the flu. Thank you. So we're going to jump right in because, as always, we have a crazy amount of stuff to cover. But somehow... We're going to focus it on two, what I think, and you agree, are the key sort of issues from last week to to get into. And the first one is this disaster that took place uh, in northern Gaza 
on Thursday when aid trucks were entering the Strip and they were swarmed by civilians. There was shooting. There was some kind of riot. There was seems to be utter chaos. And the world decided immediately that it was all the fault of Israel and the IDF on yet another murderous rampage in the Gaza Strip. But it's actually a little more nuanced and complex than that, isn't it, Yaakov? It's much more complex. But what's also important to keep in mind here is that Israel is just on the wrong side of this whole story to begin with for a very simple reason. Even according to the Israeli claim that it wasn't the soldiers who killed the people, yes, some shots were fired at some of the people who came too close to Israeli tanks that were nearby protecting, actually guarding the, the aid trucks. Even the argument that most of the people were killed because of the swarm or the stampede or they were run over, to the world, the responsibility for that is Israel, right? So when the IDF says, no, it wasn't us who shot them, they were run over by the trucks or there was a stampede, no, the world says, no, but you're still responsible for that. So We're responsible for everything. Hang right. on, before you get too far down the analysis, would you mind just backing up and sketch out what happened? Because not everyone right. may realize. So early in the morning on Thursday, a bunch of trucks were allowed in through northern Gaza. What, what The problem that Israel's had, or I guess also the aid organizations have had, is that bringing the trucks in through Kerem Shalom or Rafa in the south, it's been difficult to get those trucks up to the north. And the North is turning into a, a, a bit of a Achilles heel in this operation because there's a lot of anarchy, there's disarray. The IDF is still operating there in some of those areas to weed out the final Hamas members who are still t making a stand. So there still is fighting, but I've got a couple hundred thousand Palestinians who have returned to the North are in desperate need of aid. So the Israelis decided to try this effort and to bring in trucks from the North, from Israeli territory into Gaza along the coast and to protect it. So they had troops there. They allowed some of these trucks in. What they didn't anticipate, though, was this swarm of people. And you see this in some of the drone footage that the IDF then put out, really descend on these trucks, start to fight, start to grab. The trucks start to drive. Who knows what Hamas did? Did they open fire? Did they not? There's a lot of conflicting reports. What we know is that dozens, if not close to 100 people, were killed, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, a.k.a. Hamas. Israel says that it was not, the deaths were not caused by the troops, maybe some of them. The troops did open fire when a small group came close to the soldiers who were deployed nearby, but that most of the people were actually injured or killed from the stampede and from getting run over by the trucks. The problem is there's no, the evidence is very loose here and flimsy, right? If I want to compare it, Vivian, to the second week of the war, the Al-Aliyah hospital, when there was that false claim that Israel bombed a hospital, killed 500 people, and right away, Israel was able to unequivocally prove pretty much that it wasn't behind that bombing. Here, it sent out an edited video from a drone there's just, it's a lot of hearsay. It's a lot of he said, she said, and the world's not buying it this time. And we're seeing growing, while Israelis might've moved on, the world is not moving on from this story. And so, as you said at the outset, the view or the prevailing view that we're seeing globally is like whatever 
happened, whether they died in a stampede or a swarm or a crush or from bullets, it's on you, Israel, because you created this chaos. Exactly. So there you go back to what I was saying exactly is like this whole argument that the IDF spokesperson has been trying to make and hats off to them and their attempts, but it doesn't solve the issue because the world looks at this and says, I don't care how the people were killed if they were shot by Israeli bullets. And by the way, I was watching one video which shows tracer rounds. Those are like the ones that light up with red, indicating that maybe this was the idea. But it does, it, again, to the world, it doesn't make much of a difference because people were killed trying to get food. And who created yeah. this situation, according to the world? Israel did. So Israel's responsible, whether it was the result of people getting shot or the result of people getting run over by trucks. It doesn't make much of a difference. And Israel is in what I would call their off side on this one. They're, they're just on the wrong side. I was wondering when I'm seeing all of this uh, transpire, why is Israel, why is the IDF escorting in aid trucks? Why don't they just, they hand it over to the aid organizations? That's their job. If Hamas hijacks the trucks with, with armed thugs, should Israel be overseeing the aid convoys? I, I think that Israel's stuck between a rock and a hard place on this one. On the one hand, the world is saying you have to let in more aid. Israel would prefer not to have to deal with this stuff. But it understands that it doesn't have a choice because if it wants continued American support specifically, it will have to allow this aid in. So it, it, it's trying to find the right balance. So on the one hand, it wants to enable the trucks to go in. When these trucks go in, it does have to put in some safety measures to uh-huh. ensure that they're not attacked, to ensure that things like this didn't happen. But it did. And this is the disaster that we're now facing. I think that what also exasperates this whole situation is that the Americans then parachute in aid we saw on Saturday. So people who are watching this around the world are saying, this is what President Biden can do. In other words, Israel, the recipient of aid, of so much military aid from the United States, of weapons and munitions and fighter jets and spare parts and and you name it, the leverage that America has over Israel only allows it to parachute in aid. So the, the, the detractors of Israel are looking at the situation, they're also hammering away at the president and saying, look at how weak you are when it comes to Israel. So it's a colossal mess up here, if you think about it, right? We have Biden looking bad, whether it's his making or our making or everyone's making, but he doesn't look strong. He's right. coming under fire. He's going to want to crack down more on Israel. We have Israel looking like it's indiscriminately killing people. And we have Palestinians who appear to be these poor people who they are, right? And it's a tragedy what's happening, guys. I think it's their fault. Put that aside, they're suffering. So Israel is just not, there's no good way in this story right now. And just to pile on for a moment, there's also a lot of talk about the fact that we find ourselves in this colossal mess with respect to aid and scarcity of food, drugs, all kinds of provisions that people need to survive because we went into Gaza with no plan. It was like, just like Biden said at the outset, if you're going in, have a plan for the the proverbial day after, how are you going to manage? How are you going to extricate if you're going to extricate? And we all know that we never really did have a plan. We still Uh, don't. And we still don't. Exactly. And that this is part of it is that chaos fills vacuums when you don't have organized leadership. Some IDF officials who have been describing what's happening in the northern Gaza like Somalia, right? And and that's the last thing that I think Israel wants. And part of the problem is no doubt, Vivian, like you're describing, that Israel, from the beginning, I mean, I could say even personally, from the beginning when, when the blood was still really boiling, 
in the immediate aftermath of October 7th, when people were saying to me, especially Americans were like, Yaakov, right. you got to think about the day after. I was like, what are you talking about? We're fighting for survival. Get we were. After. But they were right. You can't ignore that you're going to get to this point. And we're at the point already for several weeks now. And we're not articulating or outlining what it is that we want to see happen. Who's taking the reins? Who's going to be in charge? There's all these crazy ideas that I hear. I mean, they're not crazy in the sense that I don't think they, I, I just don't see how they'll work, but we're going to, we're going to talk to the clans of Gaza. Those are the people we're going to work with as if we're right. going to, we're going to divide and conquer Gaza up into different tribes and clans of Palestinians. Come on. You need a centralized authority in the Gaza Strip. It's not, hopefully it won't be Hamas. I think that's the objective and aim of this operation in this war. But we can't pretend that there's like some, we're going to talk to 20 different clans and tribes. That's how we're going to run Gaza the day after. Come on, we, we got to get serious here. And this whole situation is not working well for us right now. And I want to just add that when you raise the specter of Somalia, basically on our front porch, I prefer Hamas. That kind of situation makes Hamas look like, you know, walk in the park. Okay. As usual, we have another mess on our hands and no solutions, but hopefully now we've clarified what. Why we are we pessimistic? We now know. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, he's so smiling. You got to know he's smiling as he says it. The other big issue here that never goes away and never will go away ever is the hostage issue, of course. And it's just horrific. It's desperate. As I've mentioned many times on this podcast, I often go pop into Hostage Square in Tel Aviv just to be there, show support, talk to people. I'm very engaged and involved with interviewing and doing a lot of research for this book also that I'm working on, which we'll talk about some other time. But we now have, we're coming up to 150 days. We know that more than a few have died, been murdered in captivity. We had a glimmer of hope about two, three weeks ago that we were going to see some kind of breakthrough before Ramadan. I naively thought it's in everyone's best interest that there be no fighting during Ramadan and the hostages be repatriated. But I don't think that Sinwar cares. I really don't. I think that the more chaos and fear and suffering he can inflict, the better it is for him. We're in this position now where we have still 134 hostages in the Gaza Strip. The IDF believes that 29, I think, are dead. Hamas says it's more. And Netanyahu last week said, we're not going back to the talks in Cairo until we receive a list of living hostages. And he repeated that, I believe, again last night or today. And the response from Hamas is, yeah, you're going to have to pay for a list. Why are we asking for just a list? I would say, why are we not demanding a list and signs of life. And why do we pay for that information when you know we're clothing and feeding and taking care of all prisoners from Hamas and the Gaza Strip according to international standards? I know that's the standard. That's always been that way. There's been this imbalance, this inequity when Israel's trading hostages on. And why are we doing this five? months later. the Let me just say a couple of things. First of all, what you said about Sinwar, I completely agree with. And by the way, there was that report that came out in the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago that he said to other Hamas leaders, let them come into Rafah, right? Yeah. I got no problem. I can withstand it. I can wait them out. They're going to kill a lot of civilians. 
and the world will crack down on them. And by the way, this event in the North on Thursday, this incident, this tragedy, is basically the materialization or the realization, sorry, of what Sinwar was saying, right? The world will do the job for him. That's one. Two, the hostages are continued to be his bargaining chip. And they got Israel in a tough spot, right? Our ability to leverage or to put pressure on Hamas here is very limited. The only thing that we really have is to continue the military offensive. But if it's not impacting him in the way that we want it to, and it's not putting the pressure on him, then how are we able to get a deal? So Israel is trying on the one hand to put the pressure on militarily. So he feels like his back is up against a wall. On the other hand, you got the Qataris and the Americans who are putting pressure on, and the Egyptians who are putting pressure on the, the Americans on the Qataris and the Egyptians, the Qataris and the Egyptians on the Hamas leaders overseas. Everybody's trying to put pressure somewhere else. But at the end of the day, it's up to Sinwar whether he's going to agree to a deal or not. And therefore, we don't have much to play with in this equation except to acquiesce and agree to their demands and hope that we get some sort of response. Now, add to this, Vivian, the fact that there is some speculation or accusations more, I would say, that from definitely the hostage forum, the family forum, that the prime minister does not want to deal. And you see, is it, I don't want to believe that Netanyahu doesn't want to bring these people home. I think he does want to bring them home. He wants to do it in the way that he pays the least price possible. He wants to do it in a way that doesn't undermine the, the offensive and the, the larger objective of toppling Hamas. The fact of the matter is that every time there's some sort of talk in Cairo or Paris, there's always these games that we're playing. Do they go? Do they not go? Who goes with? Who doesn't go? What authority do they have when they're there? Can they negotiate? Can they not negotiate? Look at the whole fiasco now. A little different around Benny Gantz's trip to Washington, D.C. He flew Saturday night. He's supposed to meet on Monday at the White House with Kamala Harris, Jake Sullivan, have some other meetings. Netanyahu has said, apparently there's a report, he told the ambassador, Mike Herzog, Israel's ambassador, you do not even, you don't go to the meetings, you don't facilitate, you don't help. The government's not paying for this trip. It's being paid privately out of the pocket of Benny Gantz's party because Netanyahu wouldn't approve it. Come on, we have a guy, Benny Gantz, who the Americans like and are willing to talk to. Why do we not want to use this channel of communication right now to work with the Americans at a time that we need the Americans more than ever? Why are we playing politics with things like this? So there's just a lot of the politics that gets inserted into everything, including the hostage negotiations. It just makes me sick, to be honest. And I think that today's not the day, but the day will come soon when we really take apart what's gone on with the whole hostage thing over the last five months and waiting three weeks to even go in with boots on the ground and why and so many missed opportunities, in my view, to shock and awe and do what needed to be done and heavy style, not just to get out too, but to go in and understand there may be many more casualties, but go in, shock and awe, create chaos at their end and get as many of our people out as we can. On top of so many other tragedies around this, we have, in my view, a prime minister who is behaving in many ways, but not prime ministerially, very detached, seems like just not to care. And as you point out, there are lots of political games being played, but too many, way too many. But I don't want to get too far into the weeds because like we get off on this, but our listeners, like they're going to think we're going to lose them. 
But here's another, and I'm going to say this because it's really tough and it needs to be said, is that I do think that there are two groups of hostages in Hamas captivity that are unlikely to come out alive. And those are our soldiers, the ones who are captured in uniform, and some of the young women who are pregnant. Because part of what the speculation is, they're not going to want the women to come back and tell what happened to them. Right. And they also won't want their bodies to come back. Yeah. Because their bodies, even if they weren't alive, can tell the story. And that's, I've always said this from since October 7th, I've said that whatever is going on now with the hostages and with the country is nothing compared to what will happen when they come back, if they come back. That's when it's really going to get tough. And with that said, I hope and pray that they come back. We all do. We absolutely hope. We're all doing what we can to make sure that happens. But I think that five months on, it's time for us to start to actually talk about the horrific reality that we all know, but don't say out loud. Okay. So on that very somber note, we're looking ahead to the week. As I mentioned at the outset, Yaakov and I will spend a few moments at the end of each podcast looking to the week ahead and providing a preview as to what we think will be the dominant issue in Israel. You got to understand this is a high-risk endeavor. It'll be interesting to see week to week how few times we actually get it right. Not because we're not paying attention, but because every day here is like a hundred in most places. The pace and stress levels are off the charts, even for Israel. But we do our best. Stay with us for this week's Look Ahead. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com. All one word. Now, back to the podcast. I want to try to start predicting what do you think is going to dominate the week? I'll say two things, I think. One is obviously the future of the ground offensive in Gaza. Are we going into Rafa? Are we not going into Rafa with the negotiations? We're going to keep seeing this ping pong back and forth. But the second big issue is, and we didn't get into this and I don't want to open it up too much right now, but mm. the political story of the draft law with the ultra-Orthodox is the big story right now, politically speaking, in Israel. And the clock is ticking simply because by the middle of the month, the High Court of Justice will be handing down a decision and the government will have to basically inform what is it doing. And so far, it's not doing anything. So what exactly where this goes could determine a lot about the future of the government. My prediction, this will be a big story for the week to come. And I also will go out on a limb and say, Netanyahu will somehow find a solution for it. Okay, so we agree on one part. It will be the big story for the week to come. And I am not going to 
put my faith uh, in Netanyahu this time. <laughs> I'm going uh, all think, the way out here. I you yeah I think and I agree with you. I think it is the big story, and I raised it. And I'm so glad you came up with that because that, uh, barring any unforeseen craziness here in the course of the next week, that's what I really want to focus on next week. What is going on? Because that is just going to really come to a boil. I just don't see a way out for Bibi this time, especially since the three former IDF chiefs of staff who sit in the Knesset and uh, are in the war cabinet said, got to have the Haredi draft. See, we're bringing you so much more joy next week, everybody out there. You have something to look forward to. And hopefully, Yaakov, you'll be feeling much better by next Sunday. I better. <laughs> Rest up, lots of vitamin C. You know the drill. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv.